It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. Today he'll talk about BitMessage. Is it as secure as it's supposed to be? He also talks about the USA and Brazil, another embarrassment oracle, doing it all over again. And he has a revelation to make about a new product he's going to be working on sometime soon. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash android. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 420, recorded September 4th, 2013, BitMessage. Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to proxpn.com slash twit and use the offer code SN20. And don't forget to try the new ProXPN app for Android in the Google Play Store. It's time for Security Now, the show where we cover your security, your privacy, your all the good stuff that you need to know when you get online. And there's nobody better to do it than our explainer-in-chief and coffee addict, Pro Tem. No, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Stephen Gibson of uh, GRC.com. He's a creator of SpinRight, the guy who first discovered spyware, coined the term, wrote the first anti-spyware. He's also the guy who told Microsoft, you're crazy when they did that uh, that raw sockets thing. Nobody believed him. Everybody dissed him. Microsoft mocked him until it became a big problem and they had to take it out. I can go on and on. This is a guy. He's been... He's been in the lead, the charge, all along, and you got to listen to him, Steve Gibson. I think, Leo, we may be able to add before long that I came up with a solution for uh, user login and web authentication. This would be huge. It would be huge. And be huge. I think I got it. All right. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Did you have this inspiration in the shower? No, I was having coffee and reading the, my morning stuff when I was having some breakfast. And it just kind of, I, I mean, I'm... My total focus is on Spinrite and working on the next release of Spinrite. And this just came unbidden, like, and I went, oh. Sometimes that happens. And, and then I thought, wait a minute. And then the more I've thought of it, it's been six days now. And and I it's, and I, I wanted to, to call it HIPS, H-I-P-S, which would be an acronym for hiding in plain sight. Because, I mean, it is so I like simple. That. I like that acronym. so obvious. Yeah. Um, You're like Archimedes anyway. in his bathtub. Well, Eureka! And, I th- and as I as we were saying before, many times when the way the human brain works, you you focus on a problem, yeah. you really yeah. think about it, and then you just put it away. Mm-hmm. And other parts of your brain have been engaged. And so, and and when when our listeners learn of this, it'll be like, oh, la, uh, it's yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can't. It's it's so much better than anything we have now. You're such I can't a tease. Imagine All right, stop teasing us. Suggest. Okay, <laughs> let's get to All the right. security news. You can tease us later. By the way, what is this show about? Bit message. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, it's 
I want to I want to cover bit message to sort of get it out of the way. It is it's got so many problems that it that it probably isn't going to survive at least in its current form. It could mutate, but the many of the people that have, have successfully attacked it for its shortcomings have also mentioned they're working on something of their own. So, and I appreciate them disclosing that, but so I, so this is an example of what I have expected we would see post NSA and Snowden revelation, which is, you know, of refocusing on this kind of stuff. I think I, I read that Tor traffic is up 500%. It's like five wow. times more use Good. of Tor. Good. So, so, so BitMessage, I, I, everyone wants to know what it is. So this is, I, I didn't bother to spend the time to dissect the protocol at that level because I don't think it's, I think it's a waste of time. But I want to, but there's, my, my subtitle is an idea worth learning from, which is, and so the concepts are interesting, and so we're going to talk about it so that everyone's curiosity will be satisfied. You'll sort of know what it is. You could use it if you wanted to, but it's probably better to wait for 2.0 or maybe even 1.0. I think it's at 0.3.5 right now. <laughs> that's usually, or, that's usually or, <laughs> a bad place to start, yeah. Or wait for the one that succeeds it that, like, solves some of the fundamental problems problem. So it's 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 some interesting ideas that are definitely worth sharing and we got a bunch of news this week as well. Very exciting. Very exciting. Well, just before we get going, uh let's do a little uh business if you don't mind, you can finish that cup of I joe. I can refill my coffee cup. Yeah, go yeah. get a, go get some more coffee while I talk about Pro XPN. Steve's check this out and gives it his thumbs up because Pro XPN uses Open VPN to protect your online Bidness. Keep it away from prying eyes, starting with your internet service provider on up to, to uh, well, whoever wants to know more about you. ProXPN.com. Now, we've talked about the idea of a, of, a, of a VPN. That's a virtual private network. It is an encrypted tunnel through which you're surfing your email, your instant messaging, whatever you're doing on the internet goes. No one could crack into that tunnel. It uses strong encryption. And that tunnel takes you to the VPN server. Then it has to emerge onto the internet, of course. Otherwise, you know, it wouldn't work. ProVPN has... ProXPN, I should say. That's important, by the way. People probably are going to ProVPN. It's ProXPN for VPN, okay? ProXPN uh, does some really interesting things with their, uh, with their um, VPN. For instance, they have servers all over the world. They just opened a new one. Uh, right now, it's Dallas, Seattle, London, Singapore, Los Angeles, New York, and Amsterdam. Uh, that means that's where you emerge. So there's some benefits to that, too. That means geographic restrictions are eliminated. You can emerge. You can seem to be coming from whatever country you choose. You can protect yourself against prying ISPs and those six-strike rules. You can protect yourself against uh, open Wi-Fi access spots. People snooping on what you're doing at a, at a Starbucks or at a hotel or anywhere you're using uh, the Internet. And their software for Windows and Mac offers even more control, allowing you to select the programs and ports you want to anonymously route through ProXPN servers. Also works with Android and iOS. They offer PPTP, but now the new ProXPN app for Android in the Play Store uh, means you can use OpenVPN on your Android. That's the best choice. 
and, of course, world-class customer support. Now, they have a free solution, but uh, the pro solution, which I recommend, normally $74.95 a year that's or $9.95 a month, we've got a special offer. If you uh, visit proxpn.com slash twit to sign up, and use the offer code SN for security now, SN20. You'll get 20% off, not for the first month or year of your ProXPN subscription, but for the life of your account. That means on the annual plan, you're, you're paying less than 5 bucks a month for total protection. And, of course, if you're not satisfied, cancel within seven days and get a full refund. Protect yourself online with the strongest encryption available. ProXPN.com slash twit. And don't forget to use SN20 when you buy. Leo Laporte, Steve Gibson, Security Now on the air. And uh, <laughs> I like the, the headline of your first story. <laughs> uh, it says NSA and the USA in the D-O-G-H-O-U-S-E. What's going on? Yeah, well, there were, you know, there's continues to be international fallout from the the incremental revelations as the Snowden documents continue to come out. And I first learned of this from a tweet from a, uh, a Brian S is his, his name. And he said, he said, to, he sent to at SGGRC NSA fallout. Brazil's government seeks to create new surveillance proof email system, aim an alternative to Gmail. And he sent me a, a bitly link which took me to the article in Portuguese, which described this, and and a different friend of mine sent also that, but said he noted that the Google Translate does a, a pretty good job. So looking at that and sort of pulling out keywords because it's still you know a machine translation, um, what it looks like is that. The Brazilian government, in the wake of the Snowden NSA revelations, ordered their domestic postal system to expand an existing email facility, which was previously targeted mostly for business, into a national competitor to Hotmail and Gmail, specifically to avoid the problem of U.S. NSA surveillance. So this is them saying... Gee, you know, now that the emperor's been shown to have no, no, no clothes at all, uh, we need to do something about this. So they're just uncomfortable with using domestic, you know, Hotmail and Gmail, U.S. services. And I just shake my head. I mean, it's certainly sad uh, that this has, has happened. But, um, you know, that, that's the consequence. Secondly, the Indian government, uh, this was a headline, this was covered by the hackernews.com. So the Indian government may ban U.S. email services for official communications. And they're, 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 I'll just share the top of the story. They said the Indian government is planning to ban the use of U.S.-based email services like Gmail for official communications to increase the security of confidential government information. Well, one could argue it should have never been, you know, unencrypted heading off to Gmail for, you know, important Indian government work. But they said, I mean, continuing, the recent dis disconcerting reports that 
India was being spied upon by American intelligence agencies has opened an all-new chapter in the cybersecurity space, as leaked by former U.S. National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden that NSA involved in white that the NSA was involved in widespread spying and surveillance activities across the globe. The government, the Indian government, plans to spend to sorry to send a formal notification to about 500,000 employees across India asking them to stick to the official email service provided by India's National Information Center, said the Times of India. The fact that several government officers in top positions use their Gmail IDs for official communications... Uh, several senior government officials in India, including ministers of state for communications uh, and um, uh, and a few others that are named in the article, had their Gmail IDs listed in government portals as their official email. So last week, India's IT minister revealed that the new policy will enforce rules such as the use of static IP addresses, virtual private networks and one-time passwords – for accessing Indian government email services on all Indian port on on all Indian officials who are stationed abroad, all Indian missions will use it said NIC servers, which are directly linked to a server in India, and that will keep government information safe. So, you know, uh, in in the past we were seeing rather lax security and not much focus and concern, but uh, governments are responding. To, to what has been learned about what the NSA is doing. And then of course, this they're was, spying on us, too. So, yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah, but they're doing it more secretly, apparently. Right. They, that's the big yeah. difference. They're able to keep it quiet. Right. There's no Snowdens working for them. Okay, so this was, this next piece helped, I think, to explain a little bit about what we discussed last week with not only David Miranda being detained, but then that weird forced destruction of hard drives in the basement of The Guardian over in the UK. It turned out that David Miranda, who was, as we know, working as a courier uh, for The Guardian's Glenn Greenwald, shuttling documents back and forth. <clears throat> are you sitting down, Leo? I know you are. I'm sitting on my ball, yes. Just want to make sure. Are you, are you well centered? enough. Are you, Maybe I need more well support. Are you well-centered? Center yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. <laughs> he was carrying the secure password for TrueCrypt encrypted drives on a piece of paper. He wrote it down. He wrote it down. Now, we've discussed, obviously, many times proper password management. And Bruce Schneier is famous for saying yeah, it is that. better to have a password you cannot remember and must write down than one that is easy to remember that, but, that you don't write down because if it's easy to remember, it's easy to brute force. Right. But, you know, the, the, uh, of course, the right solution is to be a little more clever. <laughs> if, you, you know, leave off something. That the you, Walter White solution. Yes, exactly. <laughs> leave, leave off the ending, you know, seven characters, which you can remember, which you don't then tell anyone. And then you're mystified why the password that was written down doesn't work. It's like, well, that's, that's what they gave to work. me. I, I don't yeah. know why. Yeah. You know, I'm not technical. Oh. Anyway, so 
the, the, the register was apparently delighted in reporting this, um, that he was that Miranda was carrying a hard drive encrypted with TrueCrypt. So they said it had been widely reported that Miranda disclosed some passwords to the police at Heathrow under threat of jail. But many analysts had concluded that these were merely those of his social networking accounts and such. Which <laughs> it's would, my Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you my Twitter. If you, if you really want to log in as, with my Facebook account, then okay. Uh, he said, which it would be implausible to claim he did not know. Naturally, it was considered unlikely that he would even know the keys to any top-secret encrypted data he might be carrying. This was the view taken by security guru Bruce Schneier, for instance. But now, in a court statement made this morning and tweeted live by Telegraph correspondent David Barrett, the government says that Miranda was actually carrying a piece of paper with a decryption password written on it. Oh. This allowed the police oh. to read at least some of the files he was carrying. These include some 58,000 highly classified UK intelligence documents. In the, yes. In the government's view, this demonstrated, quote, very poor information security practice, unquote, on the part of Greenwald and The Guardian. According to the cabinet office official making the statement... Snowden was it, probably going, God, I told I, them! Oh. I know. It was concern over this apparent amazingly lax security posture by The Guardian that had previously led the government to insist on destruction of any Snowden files it held on UK territory at least. And now I have to say... Who can blame them? I mean, yeah. if you're given this kind of information, you you absolutely have to treat it with respect. Yeah. And you know, if they're if they're traipsing around with encrypted drives and the password written down, no, not obfuscated. No, don't swap the first and second half. Don't change anything about it. I mean, there's so many things you could do. You use haystacks. Just add some stuff to it. But we then, knew because but, uh, Greenwald couldn't figure out how to use PGP. We knew he was not I, sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. I bet this is just a crime. And I mean, they've had they've had WikiLeaks support and help. And you'd think that somebody would have said, "Okay, look, here's the basics." But no. So anyway, I I could you could imagine? I mean, we do know. That the UK, that, that, that part of what, what Snowden provided was what documents the UK feels extremely unhappy about ha being disclosed. But then, and so it's one thing for someone, you know, for the press to have them. It's another thing for them to be flying around the world with it essentially in plain text. Because that's what you have if you're using TrueCrypt and the password, you know, tattooed to you. So, yeah. That's really Oops. too bad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there was, it was revealed a, a sort of an interesting iOS and OS 10 vulnerability. This is, at this point, this is a crashing problem, but we all know that that's the way exploits begin. So Boy Genius reported, um, 
Android might be targeted by hackers and malware far more often than Apple's iOS platform, but that doesn't mean devices like the iPhone and iPad are immune to threats. A post on Russian website Habra Haber.ru, <laughs> H A B R A H A B R.ru, it's the way you spell it, draws attention, for Elaine, <laughs> draws attention to a fairly serious vulnerability that allows nefarious users to remotely crash apps on iOS 6 or even render them unusable. The vulnerability is seemingly due to a bug in Apple's core text font rendering framework and OS X Mountain Lion is affected as well. According to the report, simply exposing various iOS or OS X apps to one of several possible strings of text is enough to trigger a crash. What's more, sending one such string as an SMS or an i or an i message to an iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch or Mac computer can crash Apple's Messages app repeatedly rendering it unusable. Safari is also impacted by the bug and naming a Wi-Fi network with one of those strings of text can cause an error while any Apple device is scanning for networks. Oh, that's so this bad. is oh, that's really bad. Oh, that's ugly. That's nasty. The report claims that Apple has been aware of this vulnerability for six months and has yet to patch the exploit in any currently available operating system build. The author does note, however, that beta versions of iOS 7 and Mac's, Mac OS 10 Mavericks are seemingly not affected. So, for well, whatever reason, that's how they plan to fix it. Then, because yes, those so, are both coming out soon. Yes, and what I would say to then to people is, upgrade. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is definitely. Or if your device begins doing something really suspicious every time you drive by a certain Starbucks, then uh, now you know why. You know, if it crashes when it comes within range of of their network or someone's network. So I thought that was interesting. And. I picked this up also. I thought this was interesting. Um, in what's being regarded as a historic vote, Ars Technica reported that New Zealand just banned software patents. Yay. Yeah. Big yay. Yay. So Joe, Joe Mullen reporting for Ars Technica said a major new patent bill passed in a, and this was a landslide vote, is 117 to 4. Huh. By New Zealand's parliament after five years of debate. They could, wow. probably could have cut the debate somewhat shorter, given that <laughs> it has that kind of majority. Has banned software patents. The reluctant clause, the, no, sorry, the relevant clause of the patent bill actually states that a computer program is, quote, not an invention, unquote. And, you know, Good. people it's not. People, People have argued that you cannot patent math and computer programs are just math. So why can you patent computer programs? Yeah, good question. Some have suggested that was a way to get around the wording of the TRIPS, T-R-I-P-S, Intellectual Property Treaty, which requires patents to be, quote, available for any inventions, whether products or processes, in all fields of technology. 
So instead, they're just saying um, a computer program is not an invention. So therefore, it doesn't have to, you know, we don't have a problem with this next clause of available for any inventions, whether products or processes. If it's not an invention, then it doesn't matter. Processes may still be patentable if the computer program is merely a way of implementing a patentable process. But patent claims that cover computer programs as such will not be allowed. And, that, and that's interesting because I probably worked on a first, one of my first patents oh, 30 years ago. And it was it used a, one of the early 4-bit micros. And it was definitely a computer program. But the attorneys I worked with said, okay, the way we do this, Steve, is we describe it as hardware. And I said, but what? It's, it's software. He says, I know, I know. But you can't patent software. Now, this again, this is like 30 years ago. So the way we do this is because a patent doesn't have to be, it, it doesn't have to always reflect the what they call the preferred embodiment. So, but you can patent hardware. You just at that time could not simply patent software. So you'd patent the hardware implementation, but then you would do a software embodiment of the invention. And that's sort of the way you worked around it. That was 30 years ago, the way we did these things. And of course, over time, it just became sort of, just sort of by agreement, nothing ever really happened, but it just the the patent and trademark office just began becoming more lax in their interpretation. You know, under I'm sure plenty of political pressure to for big U.S. companies to get patent protection for things that they wanted cover with intellectual property law. So, c continuing from this article, uh, Ars Technica, it says it seems there will be some leeway for computer programs directly tied to improved hardware. The bill includes an ex the example of a better washing machine. <laughs> Even if the improvements are implemented with a computer program, quote, the actual contribution is a new and improved way of operating a washing machine that gets clothes cleaner and uses less electricity, unquote, so a patent could be awarded. So, so that seems sort of gray to me. Yeah, um, one of the things they're talking about is you have to build a model of it, a physical model. That would be a good choice. Well, yeah. Yeah. That, that, yeah. So, so anyway, this is, you know, now, I, now the, the question, oh, and, and they are saying they will continue to honor existing patents, but they simply will not issue new ones. So now the question is, here's New Zealand off by themselves with this. What happens with the rest of the world? And, um, and, and in fact, um, the, uh, uh, they, they quote this uh, Claire Curran, She's a one member of parliament who's deeply involved in the, in the debate, Claire Curran, quoted several heads of software firms complaining about how the patenting process allowed obvious things to get patented and that, quote, in general, software patents are counterproductive. And that's, I mean, that's always been my argument is that, you know, there's, there's in, in the patent language, it's the, the, the test is supposed to be whether it would be obvious to someone trained in the art. So like if you're, you know, if you're, you went through college and you got your degree and someone said, solve this problem, you know, that's called engineering to use what you've learned to solve the problem. And, and that's different from an invention, which is like, oh my God. Now, now 
you know, I don't know if what I will be revealing as the solution to web logon authentication should be an invention or not. I'm going to claim no ownership of it because it needs to be free. But, but you know, maybe I, I think it's obvious, but, you know, like there's zipper, there, there's a zipper and there's Velcro. And so some things are obvious in retrospect, but weren't obvious, you know, prospectively. Um, so it's difficult, but it's certainly the case that that what we see with software patents today is a company was just first. And so because they were facing problems others hadn't yet faced, they're claiming that they invented all these things, which anyone else with that problem would have also done. And I guess that's my argument. I think that isn't an invention. If anyone being asked to solve the problem who is a knowledgeable expert in that knowledge domain would have like just simply done the work, written the code, then, you know, that doesn't deserve protection. So, you know, it is unfortunately our, our patent granting system, which is so broken, they say, well, that's, you know, that seems new. We'll let them battle it out in court. And that's the problem is this, this, this litigation is incredibly expensive. And in fact, it's why I stopped volunteering to be an expert witness is that I, I was for, years, I, I sort of fun to be involved, but I watched the court do the wrong thing so many times. It's like, oh, you know, I, it just, it was more frustrating than it was gratifying to, you know, help people solve problems. So, yeah. So I don't know what that means, but I think it's, it's, if nothing else, uh, it's a step in the right direction. Yes. It's, it, it's progress. It means people uh, are paying attention to it, whatever. Now we have a lack of progress. From Oracle. It's two steps forward, one step back. That's the way life is. Oh. I just hope it's it not three out, steps back. It turns out that Oracle is is like, they're reluctantly recognizing that they seem unable to, to control their own language, um, or at least the language that they inherited. And so, you know, from, from Sun, that is, of course, Java. So now... There is a new security warning, which, which Oracle has added to Java to pop up and warn you. <laughs> Use of this software could be hazardous. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, you know what? No kidding. What does but, it say? What is it, does it actually say that? No, it, yeah, it actually says that, you know, th you have, you know this is potentially no, dangerous. That's the but, solution? Uh, well, here's what they did, though. <laughs> The two of the fields, the name and the location, where it came from and who created it, are not protected. And malware can change them. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, I get it. So it warns you when you download a, a jar file. An applet cryptographically signed, yet... You can change those fields in the warning. Well, they're just text strings. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Holy moly. It's unbelievable. So Brian Krebs carried this. He said, this faced with an onslaught of malware attacks that leverage vulnerabilities and design weaknesses in Java, which puts it beautifully, Brian, Oracle Corp recently tweaked things. So that Java now warns users about the security risks of running Java content. 
But new research suggests that the integrity and accuracy of these warning messages can be subverted easily in any number of ways and that Oracle's new security scheme actually punishes Java application developers who adhere to it. Running a Java applet now pops up a security dialog box that presents users with information <laughs> about the name, publisher, and source of the application. Oracle says this pop-up is designed to warn users of potential security risks, such as using old versions of Java or running applet code that is not signed from a trusted certificate authority. Security experts differ over whether regular users pay any mind whatsoever <laughs> to these warnings. But to make matters worse, new research suggests most of the information contained in the pop-ups can be forged by malware writers. Yeah. In a series of scathing blog posts, writes Brian, longtime Java developer Jerry Jungarius details the various ways that attackers can subvert the usefulness of these dialogue boxes. To illustrate his point, Jungarius uses an applet obtained from Oracle's own website, javadetection.jar, and shows that the information in two out of the three of its file descriptors, the name and location fields, can be changed even if the applet is already cryptographically signed. So quoting from him, the bottom line in all of this is not the security risk of the errors, but that Oracle made such incredibly basic errors in allowing unsigned information into their security dialogues, John Garius wrote in an email exchange. The magnitude of that fail is huge. John Garius presents the following scenario in which an attacker might use the dialogue boxes to trick users into running unsafe, unsafe applets. Imagine a hacker taking a real signed Java application for remote desktop control and assistance and placing it on a gaming site, renaming it Chess. An unsuspecting end user would get a security pop-up from Java asking if they want to run Chess. And because they do, answers yes. But behind the scenes, the end user's computer is now under the remote control of a hacker. Or maybe to throw off suspicion, implemented a basic chess in HTML5 so it looks like the job. Like <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All because Oracle allowed the name in security dialogues to be forged to something innocent and incorrect. Oracle has not responded to requests for comment, said Brian, but John Garius is hardly the only software expert crying foul for the company's security prompts. Will Dorman, writing for the Carnegie, Melligan, Carnegie Mellon University Software Engineering Institute, actually warns Java developers against adopting a key tenant of Oracle's new security guidelines. Oracle recommends that all Java applets be cryptographically signed regardless of the privileges required by the program. But get this, unsigned Java applets will run within a web page with a scary red warning that, quote, running this application may be a security risk. Okay, so that's what Java, or the, what the Java runtime presents if you attempt to run an unsigned applet in, um, uh, in a web browser. 
and which is good, except one of Java's most touted features is a sandbox security mechanism that's supposed to prevent certain functions when the applet is sent as part of a web page. But according to both of these developers, Jungarius and Dorman, Oracle made the default behavior for signed code to be full access to the computer. Oh, come essentially on. Essentially completely negating oh, the usefulness of the sandbox. It's just crazy. And it wasn't so, that way before Oracle. I mean, that wasn't that's something Oracle did. They added they, as a feature. Yes, these are things that have, that have come along over time. These are their responses. Thank In you, fact, Oracle. They just, they cannot make it work right. <laughs> Unbelievable. We can't figure out how to do this. So oh, I'm just gonna punt. Mm. Oh Lord. Um, a bunch of people noted to me, so I wanted to sh uh, share the information that BitTorrent Sync now has an iOS client. Uh, it's, so it supports Android 2.2 and higher over on the Android side uh, and iOS 5.0 and higher uh, over on uh, uh, iOS platform. Um, still no information from them on the protocol, so we're still sort of in limbo. It looks good. They talk a lot about lots of bits of encryption and all that, but they won't tell anybody how it works. So, and, and every time I'm, I'm on their PR list, so I keep getting very nice updates from their PR guy saying, oh, Steve, it does this and it does that. And I write back, I said, that's nice. Please, I, the only thing I want to know is have the white paper on the crypto. We have to know how it works. And he says, oh, okay. Well, but but also it's pretty and it has ribbons. I said, I know, I'm sure it is. But all, all I care about is the technical details. When you have those, I will happily study it and then, you know, tell everyone that you guys did it right, assuming that they did. But until then, we don't know. <sighs> Google Authenticator, I know you know this, Leo, made a huge mistake. Yeah. Ouch. The uh, and it's now pulled from iTunes. The, this is on iOS only, by the way. Yes, an update for iOS, when updated, wiped out the secure store of all of your authenticator accounts. It, just, it started over. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I, I have to say, people um, should be saving their their uh, secret keys. I I save it in LastPass. So it's yes. very easy. And the reason I do it, uh, not because I was worried about that, although this is a benefit there, but just because I want to set up Authenticator on other platforms. Yes. So I just, I save actually the image of the QR code uh, yep. into my LastPass, into my uh, yeah, It requires more notes. steps. And so, you know, not everyone was doing it, but yes, you're right. And it would be nice if there were some, you know, like good backup facility. Uh, some automatic anyway. one. Yeah. So many people were getting hurt by this that Google yanked it immediately from iTunes. Well, and I'm I think what happens is people – so let's say you're using Google second-factor authentication. Google gives you a QR code. You snap the picture in the – the QR code just has a long number, which is your ID. And, yeah. you, and, and so you don't have to enter it in by hand. You snap a picture of it, and Google Authenticator now has it. Then people just delete it. They go on – so there's no other place that it's stored. That's just yep. dumb frankly. Yep. But they should tell you that. They should say, store this QR code somewhere securely. Yes, because you're going to need it. Print it out on paper and stick it in right. a drawer. Right. Yeah. Now, you can always ask for another one. So I don't know how big a deal it is. 
Although, um, I guess you have to obviously you have to re you have to authenticate somehow right. through a different means. Right. But all everyone who uses this has some other means. I just uh, I, uh, Evernote uses this now. Uses offers Google Authenticator, which is great. More and more people are doing this. Yeah. I mean, I feel bad for anybody who's on iOS and lost them all. I use it like crazy with LastPass, with Google, with Outlook. Microsoft uses it with Evernote. Yeah. Um, and just wait till you, and I'm able to tell you how it should be done. <clears throat> oh, I can't wait. I know. Okay, so there was a hoax that upset a lot of people. I wanted to let everyone know it is not the case that TrueCrypt has a backdoor. Oh. Uh, this weird document suddenly was floating around the internet that looked really authentic at first blush. Um, uh, it appeared to be, and you, if you click that link, Leo, bring up the PDF uh, in my notes there, you can put it on the screen, from the National District Attorneys Association. Subtitle was National Center for Prosecution of Child Abuse. And this was a, a presentation, a slide presentation for computer, it's called titled Computer Forensics for Prosecutors, dated February 18th and 19th of this year, 2013, Portland, Oregon. And it's a series of absolutely legitimate slides that would be part of a presentation being made to so, sort of for law enforcement about computer forensics technology shows it talks about hard drives and 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 encryption and hashing and you know sort of a, a sort of a a good grounder toward the end of this really authentic looking presentation there's a slide that is just labeled what's a backdoor and then underneath it says answering the question a method to bypass data encryption or security and then as bullet points, it says, does not require the password or passphrase to be known. Next bullet point, saves time, cost, and effort to access encrypted or secure data. Third bullet point, allows data to be accessed, copied, and even modified without tipping off the owner. And then coming out a level of the outline, currently available for major encryption software. Microsoft BitLocker, File Vault, BestCrypt, and TrueCrypt. That says etc. Currently implemented by major cloud storage provider to comply with NCMEC requirements. And it just sort of goes on. So people see this and freak out, thinking, I mean, looking, thinking this is like an absolute legitimate presentation. I mean, everything about it. Up to now, I mean, even through this, looks legitimate. Except the last slide. Down, if you look carefully at the last slide, it's this is the end of the first part of the presentation. So, says, part two, Detective Stu Pitt <laughs> <laughs> will take over from part two, and tomorrow... Detective Laughlin Fu will conduct <laughs> part three. And the legitimate original document document has also been found, which from which this spoofed one borrows heavily and and but the other one is much longer and you know it's clearly many of the same slides were taken and so forth. So this was just a hoax and 
Detective Stupid and Detective Laughlin Fu um, will probably not be delivering the part two and part three of the presentation. That is so uh, funny. There's there is one more little uh, revelation uh-huh. uh, somewhere when I click this. Oh no, okay. I guess the name of the PDF is hoax. But that was probably mm. added after the fact. That right? was added afterwards, oh, okay. yes. Okay. That yeah. would also give it away. <laughs> got a bunch of tweets from people. Oh, my God, there's a back door. It's like, no. I don't think so. Okay, so I had intended to cover this topic, Tor traffic analysis. So I printed out the 12-page detailed small print, two columns, PDF and took it with me to a meal. And only when I was sitting, I had sat down and, you know, was getting ready. I saw that my toner had just about run out on the printer. Oh, so you had a bunch of blank pages. I got big, huge, empty stripes, you know, down the. So anyway, new toner is on order. I will just say that this looks really interesting. It was um, this research on tour traffic analysis. And remember, we were we were talking about traffic analysis just recently because it is the Achilles heel and it also feeds nicely into our discussion of uh, a bit message. This, this paper was put together by researchers at the U S Naval research lab, which of course was the original sponsor of tour. The, they, they, they did the original work on onion routing under the auspices of DARPA um, and also some, um, people at Georgetown University. So this is, it's a beautiful piece of research. And just reading from their abstract, they said in the abstract of this, we present the first analysis of the popular Tor anonymity network that indicates the security of typical users against reasonably realistic adversaries in the Tor network or in the underlying internet. Our results show that Tor users are far more susceptible to compromise than indicated by prior work. Specific contributions, yes, specific contributions of the paper include a model of various typical kinds of users, an adversary model that includes Tor network relays, autonomous systems, internet exchange points, and groups of internet exchange points drawn from empirical study. Metrics that indicate how secure users are over a period of time. The most accurate topological model to date of the anonymous systems and internet exchange points as they relate to Tor usage and network configuration. A novel realistic Tor path simulator and analysis of security making use of all of the above. To show that our approach is useful to explore alternatives and not just Tor as currently deployed, We also analyze a published alternative path selection algorithm, congestion-aware TOR. We create an empirical model of TOR congestion, identify novel attack vectors, and show that it, too, is more vulnerable than previously indicated. So uh, I I will digest this study, figure out what it means, and we may just do a podcast on it because that's significant. Uh, but ba- basically, it sounds like it's not good news. I don't yet know how bad the news is. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So um, before we began recording, Leo, you and I had a lot of fun talking about one of our passions, which are TV, TV shows. <laughs> yeah. So in a weird, I haven't seen this from him before, blog, Paul Krugman 
who is, you know, with Nobel the Nobel Prize winning economist. New more, yeah, exactly, who blogs for the New York Times and is a regular columnist for the New York Times. The title of his, and this is a good friend of mine sent this to me, otherwise, and I'm really glad from the description, his, the title of his blog post was Send in the Clones. And then he said, parentheses, unserious entertainment advice, except he's serious about it. <laughs> so I want to share this with, this is under, we're in, we're in miscellany, now, obviously now. He wrote, hey, if I can post music videos once a week, I guess I can recommend a TV show now and then. Just finished watching our DVR'd season one of Orphan Black. And wow, if you haven't already, if you haven't heard about it, it involves a number of women who discovered that they are clones, mm. products of an illegal experiment. All of the clones are, of course, played by one amazing actress, Tatiana Maslany, who not only changes accents, but changes her whole body language when she shifts from London grifter to soccer mom huh. to science geek to murderous religious fanatic. Wow. She even does the soccer mom impersonating the grifter and vice versa. <laughs> wow. And, and somehow <laughs> makes it clear that's what's going on. Eat your heart out, Alec Guinness, writes uh, writes Paul. And with the magic of modern technology, there are multiple scenes in which, say, three of the clones are talking to each other, and you really do forget that we're watching repeated takes of the same actress. Hmm. Oh, and Max Headroom appears appears to be the big villain, although in this show, nothing is what it seems. Then he, he concludes, I think they're rerunning season one this fall, and there will be a season two next year, Highly recommended, and that's a BBC production. And you can buy it on uh, Google Play, which I'm about to do right now. Yes, it really sounds interesting. I grabbed the Blu-ray, the first season on Blu-ray disc, and Amazon said they've sent it to me, so it's on the way. Uh, And it is available in your other shadowy sources, as one would expect. Also Um, Play Store, so you can get it... uh uh, for download, I'm getting it right now from there. That's, I think it's ten episodes of the first season, yeah, and yeah. really sounds intriguing. So, uh, I'm not I, I I'm not representing it one way or the other. I haven't seen it, but I wanted to chat room, uh, chat room agrees. It's a, they, many some have seen it in the chat room. They say it's incredible. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, yeah I can't really? wait to see it. Yeah, I'm buying it right now. Okay, so a couple days ago, I posted something in the grc.spinrite.dev news group where I am hanging out full-time working on Spinrite. And in a minute, I will update everyone on that because I had a major milestone yesterday. What I posted was this. Subject was something I cannot ignore any longer. Gang, three days ago, so I guess this must have been Monday I posted this, during breakfast last Thursday morning, I came up with what may well turn out to be the solution to the whole website authentication problem. It requires no username or password. It's 100% anonymous. It gracefully supports multiple unlinked personas. It's far, in caps, more secure, quick and easy to use than one-time or or sequence-based one-time passwords. It inherently thwarts man-in-the-middle style attacks and it's comparatively safe to use in public settings where keystroke or other logging might be present. 
The whole thing is so simple and almost obvious in retrospect that I can't believe that no one else has hit upon it before, but I've searched, and apparently it's nowhere but in my head. It's inherently open, free, and TNO, and it can easily coexist with any other existing traditional authentication system, gradually taking over as it becomes more popular. And it doesn't require any sort of third party. The interaction is just between the user and any supporting website that wants to offer this authentication alternative, and any website that wished to simply could. There's no large startup cost, no critical mass needed. There's really no way for anyone to make any money with it. It needs to be free. I wasn't trying to come up with anything like this. I wasn't even thinking about the topic. I've been 100% saturated by this present work on Spinrite. But, as you all know, I've also been living in that realm thanks to the podcast, which keeps my attention focused weekly. And you all know, also, what a passion I have for the problem with perfect passwords, perfect paper passwords, off the grid, and password haystacks. It's the problem. So, we'll get this present work on the ATA Bus Mastering DMA working, solidified, and finished. Then I need to take a brief, and I put that in caps, hiatus from the version 6.1 work to create a web page describing and explaining my proposed solution. Implementation is not something that I need or can do. It's way bigger than me and would need an RFC-style standards body to ratify a single standard. So I won't be away from here for long, only long enough to create a page carefully describing, carefully describing the idea. Then I'll give it a podcast to launch it into the world and send it on its way. Then we'll immediately plow into adding AHCI controller technology as a next step in this work. So there were a couple of responses from people. One from a, from a very security and crypto savvy uh, guy who's a, also a, a very great contributor to the news group said, interesting, does it solve these problems as well? And he said, one, can be backed up and restored easily. Yes. Two, provides a key to the authenticator that can be used for encryption on the user's behalf. And actually, as a matter of fact, it does that. He said, three, can be completely protected by something you know, i.e. a master password. And the answer is yes, trivially. And he said, those are my three must-haves for any authentication system. And I said, yep, it's got them all. And then somebody else posted, okay, I can't stand it any longer. This was like two days later. He said, <laughs> Such a have, tease. You, have you given it a name? And I said, it has a name, a pretty good one. But if I share it, it's likely to set off a firestorm of speculation, which I would prefer to avoid for the time being. I shared what happened last Thursday and what has been on my mind because it was the right thing to do when I found my own focus and concentration, though not my time, increasingly distracted by the idea, because ultimately it will have some likely modest impact on this spinwrite work. Since then, pieces have been coming together and the range of applications is expanding. The patent landscape appears to be completely clear, with everything required either in public domain or explicitly released from any usage encumbrance. The world should look at and consider it sooner rather than later. So I don't want to wait long. And since there are interfaces among the pieces, 
that need to be standardized to create a single universal interoperable solution, it would be better if my initial proposal was well thought out and fully specified so that interoperable endpoints could be immediately created from the initial disclosure. Because it's always possible to miss something and because it's inherently impossible for me to adequately attack anything I have created, it needs to be reviewed by crypto-savvy third parties who can approach it from an adversarial, adversarial perspective. And then I said, if you think about it, that's exactly what this spin testing work really is that we do here, though it's other people's hardware that's taking an adversarial role. So uh, I will, uh, spin right work is really going well. Um, and I am days away from, I, I'm probably later today releasing the next iteration of testing. Uh, we are now able to transfer at, at the all-in-assembler, at the hardware level, um, 32 megabyte contiguous blocks up into extended memory. So all of that, remember I talked about the real protected mode of how in with 16-bit code you can change, you by, as a consequence of that weird fluke in the original implementation of the Intel system, you can actually get 32-bit addressing uh, by making this, by sort of breaking the way segmentation is handled. Um, and that's all working. So we have a 32 megabyte transfer buffer, and we are now using ultra DMA at the highest speed the drive can go to transfer 32 megabytes at a time. So the spin right will be screaming along. Uh, we're doing that right now on the older style ATA uh, specification. And I want to, originally I was thinking I would do 6.1 and then I would hold off to do the AHCI controller. But so many people have that now. Um, and I'm right in the middle of all this. So it's like, well, let's just get it done while while I'm in the middle of it. So um, I do want to take a break and create a web page to explain this Eureka AHA event. And when I tell everyone, they're just going to go, well, that's obvious. I mean, it's so simple. <laughs> it is just like, yeah, it is like a zipper or like Velcro. Uh, but someone somehow no one has done it. And it just it solves every problem. It's uh, it's really cool. So good. I can't wait. I uh, the problem is I think you're going to be gone. Um, yeah, I am. I'll miss it. So I'll have to hear about it from a distance. Uh, well, <laughs> we'll see how the timing goes. But yeah. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. So that's where Spinrite is. Uh, and uh, we're coming along really well. And uh, it's looking like it's going to scream. Okay. Okay. And you don't want to say the name out loud of this thing? Nope. Because people will do what they did, in fact, in the chat rooms when you did mention it before the show. Speculate as to how it, what it is and how it might work. It, so. it is. The... the, the, the um, I, I just, I, the one other person in the world knows about it because we had a three-hour conversation by phone yesterday. Mark Thompson. I figured Ma you'd tell Mark. I, 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 I needed some. I needed to bounce it off of somebody right. really smart. Right. And Mark is similarly. He's like, "Holy crap!" And I said, "I, I know," and he loves it. I mean, it's like, it's like so correct. Good. And, and um. But what, what, there was a point I was going to make. That's the reason I mentioned Mark. Um, well, that's the only person who knows what you were asking. 
you were well just that why you didn't want to say the name because you didn't want to stimulate people to say what it might be i don't, I don't remember where i was going with that thought okay. unfortunately but okay. anyway so you know one one person knows and um oh i know what it was mark felt that in order for this to succeed i had to do everything i had to have yeah you know before you announce it yeah and i had yeah. to have website stuff and yeah. everything i don't think so i mean i understand mark's position but this is so compelling it will just it will immediately kill one-time passwords they're dead they are i mean the reason it's just it's so much better than that and so i want to lay out the concept but i it, it's crazy for me to and I, I just don't have the time and it doesn't make sense for me to like try to do the whole thing it's not necessary the concept will it's so much better than anything we have ever seen that it will just happen it will acquire its own traction good so i look forward to uh, finding out more uh we don't have an ad you can go right into uh, uh bit message okay. our topic okay, of the so, day so bit message um as i said at the top of the show um i'm not bothering to dissect the protocol because there are too many problems with it in time, when it gets to 1.0, it's currently at 0.3.5, then maybe these things will be figured out. Or maybe it will have sort of been the first shot. Um, I think I was reading that that Bitcoin... No, no, it wasn't. It was the guy who did, did Litecoin. This was not his first alternative to Bitcoin. He did a first one... And there were, you know, and there were a lot, of, a lot of problems with it. And then, so then he figured out how to do it right, and he learned from that, and he did light, did, did Litecoin. So similarly, this is sort of, you know, this was just proposed as, you know, in the wake of the surveillance that was assumed to be going on. And this was even, this was back in 2012, late. I think it was like maybe November of 2012. The the, the white paper was produced proposing it's a short six page document, just sort of laying out the concept and. It's, it, you know, there's now code. Um, so one of the things it's getting is a little bit of credibility that it really doesn't deserve from Bitcoin because the reason I got so excited about Bitcoin when we did the podcast was that it was done so right. So it's called BitMessage sort of unfairly because – it's you know the only thing it really has in common with bitcoin is first of all the bit prefix <laughs> the fact that there is the concept of a partial hash collision which was one of the things that was so cool about bitcoin the notion of a proof of work the way you know the bitcoin system slows down the generation of coins to keep them at a constant rate in the face of increasing amount of total work being done to create coinage by increasing proof of work. BitMessage uses that to thwart spamming because flooding of the network is is an inherent problem. And so the guy recognized that he needed to 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 limit the way to to, like, to limit the ability to inject messages into the network. And so there's a proof of work as part of this. So that's something it borrowed from the Bitcoin concept. And then the other thing is that the way Bitcoin works, as everyone knows, 
is that essentially everybody gets the blockchain. And so that is to say that you are it's a peer-to-peer network where everything receives the current state of Bitcoin. And BitMessage has that same everyone receives everyone everything model, although it isn't a chain and the information is not kept forever. So those are the only that's the, all there is really to to tie it to bitness relative to Bitcoin. So I wanted to I wanted to differentiate it from from Bitcoin. It's not like this is some messaging system written on top of Bitcoin or in any way related to it. And so we shouldn't give it any you know any props for for being a being a relative of Bitcoin. It isn't. It just has that name. Can you just tell me what it does? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I can kind of infer from the name, but I'm curious. Yes. Yes. So it is a it is a peer-to-peer messaging system where everybody who wants to use it runs the BitMessage client, um, which I think is a Python app. I think it's written in Python, and so it's multi-platform, Windows, Linux, and 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 Mac. So they they run this client, which connects into the this peer-to-peer network, and all users retain the most recent two days worth of messages. So when somebody new connects up, they connect into the peer-to-peer network. So they, they're adding their node to this, and they receive from the peers the most recent two days worth of bit messages, which the entire network maintains. So basically, this is a bunch of peers that are passing messages around among each other. Some Anyone who wants to send somebody else in the network a message can. So they, everybody gets a, uh, a, an asymmetric key pair, a, pu- a public key and a private key. The, the hash of your public key is a, obviously a much smaller token. And in the bit message, it starts with a BM for bit message hyphen. And then it's a 36 character, you know, we're used to seeing these pseudo random strings, just looks like gobbledygook. It's weird. I think it's like base 58, which I've seen some people say, huh? Well, why 58? You know, not 64. It's like, okay, 58 for some reason. Uh, maybe it's to make, maybe they eliminated some of the visually confusing characters in case someone was going to type it in. You could type in an address. Hopefully you don't have to very often. So everyone is known by, from the, uh, in the network only uh, anonymously. So there's no username. There's no, there's no password. You're in, in that way. It's sort of also like Bitcoin, you know, you're, you are just this string, this token, which is a hash of a, of your public key. So you could put that on your website. You could email it to a friend. You could do whatever you wanted to with it. And there are four types of objects in the system. There's a request for the public key. So, so given the hash, you can ask the network for this user's pu- full public key, um, which you would use to encrypt a message that only they can read. So that's the way a person-to-person message is sent. Um, then another object is the public key. Uh, there's also a, there's a person-to-person message or a broadcast. 
because what you could also do is a person could put onto the network something that they want multiple people to read. And so rather than encrypting with a recipient's single public key in order so that only they're able to re- to receive it, you would instead encrypt with your private key so that anybody who wants to read what you have broadcast is able to do so. So anyway, so basically this, it, it's, it's a weird concept. Um, all these people are in this completely, this densely interconnected peer-to-peer network and anyone who sends a message it is that message is received by everyone and the way the only way you know if a message has been put in this sort of like dropped into the network where it propagates across the entire network is if you, if is if your private key can decrypt it so so messages are coming in and you and your client checks each one that comes in to see if it's able to decrypt it. And if it is, then it must have been encrypted with your public key and thus bound for you. And so so when you think about it, this defeats to some degree, but but there are many there there this has been around long enough and and enough people have looked at it that there are people beginning to find little chinks in the armor here. The concept was that since everybody received all messages, there was no way to tell when a message was meant for someone, which is clever. I mean, it defeats traffic analysis just by by by, by virtue of sending everybody everything. It's like uh, okay, so so that's essentially the concept. Um, there are normally messages are acknowledged, and so some critics of this have said, "Wait a minute, you know if." If tr- messages are coming in and they're being selectively decoded and they're acknowledged when decoded, then the act then a node could be a user could be seen sending an, a, an acknowledgement out, which would mean that that's acknowledging something they received. So you know you can see where you can begin to chip away at this at the opacity that the entire system w- was designed to have. Um, also, it feels very immature from a cryptographic standpoint. Normally, what you do, and we've talked about this often, is if you wanted to encrypt a message, you would you would use a pseudo-random number generator to generate a nonce, a one-time pass, a one-time symmetric key. You would use any of the well-established, proven. Um, cipher blockchaining approaches to to encrypt your message under that symmetric key then you would only use your either the private or the public key the asymmetric key to encrypt that symmetric key and you attach it and off it goes the, as i understand it and again i didn't dig really deep i'm just looking at comments from people who have been critical of it the system uses the asymmetric key for the bulk encryption. Now, part of their motivation was probably to slow down the creation of longer messages because there, 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 is, a, there is this intention in the system for 
the the bigger the message is, the harder it is to create it. So they may have deliberate. I mean, it's hard to imagine that somebody who created this wouldn't have understood how basic, you know, PGP or or SSL. I mean, all encryption uses the concept of a of a pseudo random key that you use for symmetric encryption, and you you use the much more slow asymmetric encryption only for the symmetric key. Anyway, as I understand it, this system doesn't do this. Also, there is no interblock. There's no in, there's no interblock connection, and I've seen some people talking about that you could reuse pre already encrypted blocks and reorder them, and re, be, allowing blocks to be reordered is never a good idea. And you could also uh, append additional information at the end of blocks. Anyway, it's like it's the implementation really feels weak. So again, it's it's receiving well deserved criticism, and. Uh, I think maybe at some point it, it'll get off the ground. Uh, it's not clear. Uh, it is possible to tell people you are very concerned about privacy, so you will not respond with an acknowledgement. Otherwise, the, the the problem is if somebody were sending you an, uh, s- sending a message to you. Remember that messages only stay in all. It sort of are hosted by this network for two days. So what if the recipient was offline for two days and then the message that was bound for them, they would never see. Um, so the idea is that you would you need to check in every two days in order to to get an update of all the messages that you're behind on so you can see if any of them are for you or if oh and when you receive it, you're supposed to acknowledge it to the sender so the sender can remove it from their sender's queue and essentially acknowledge, you know, know that the recipient got it. Otherwise, the proper behavior, if the sender really wants to to verify receipt, is, is an exponential back off where they'll wait two days, then they'll wait four days, then they'll wait eight days, then they'll wait 16 days, resending each time, doubling the length of time. Then the logic on the receiver side is you need to you need to listen. If you've been away for some number of days, like 16 days, you need to listen for at least that length of time in order to, to create a window during which the, the sender will resend during, that, during the period of time you're looking. So anyway, it's, as you can kind of hear, it's like, uh, okay, you know, it's kind of clunky, um, People are really concerned about scaling. Scaling, the, the, the original author of the document addresses this, um, and he comes up with a way of, of like forking the, forking the network through a series of, of, of binary decisions to create substreams um, and then a sort of a complex man, a way of managing parents and, 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 and siblings of, of streams. And anyway, just... It's it's interesting, but it just doesn't feel like it's there yet. And I, I actually was found myself being encouraged by looking at some of the very good criticisms of it. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, people who are saying, yeah, well, I'm working on something that I think is going to solve these problems. So I want to, you know, let everyone know that. And um, 
uh, but in the meantime, here's what I think about BitMessage. So it's like, yeah, if you need, I think if you're curious about things, grab it, load it up, play with it. People who have played with it say it's very cool. You know, they get this token, which is their identity. They send it to a friend and then they and they get their friend's token. And then you in the bit in the client, you're able to say, generate a person-to-person message or a broadcast. So you choose which type of message you want to put out onto the network, and then you just, you know, type a message and send it. So there's no support currently for files. There's no support for, you know, formatted text and all those things. Those things could come later or in this or in some other form. Um, So it's, it's interesting, but I don't think it's really there to be taken seriously. Yeah, I, I guess somebody said in the chat room that uh, Dvorak's using this for uh, no agenda. Um, so there, if you if you're a fan, you might want to mention it. John. Yeah, there there was also somebody did a, an experiment to de-anonymize BitMessage users. Yeah, he um, because you can see the the tokens of of people on the network. This person collected thousands of current BitMessage tokens then requested the network requested their public keys so he could send them something and then sent each person a customized uh-huh. message with a URL uh-huh. to a server and it made it look like it was an official bit message announcement addressed to them and so like 15,000 people clicked the link and immediately lost their anonymity because, of course, <laughs> they're, they're, not only did he have their IP, but the URL was customized. So he knew which which bit message token was associated with which user coming in and therefore what their browser query headers were and the IP where they were. Wow. So that now arguably that that's an out of band attack. It's right. clever. Right. But, you know, and so it's the standard. Well, don't click on links. Right. You know, please but you know it's an example of how the system could be abused so anyway it's interesting it's like eh, okay we, we, we need something better uh and crypto cat still a good choice you think or for yes i would say from per point to point see crypto cat is real time you it requires right. you both be online right. Right. in order to to like in order a traditional to traditional im system yeah um, yes, like a traditional yeah. IM system, yeah. whereas this is more of a is more Storing of an asynchronous, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. stored forward asynchronous messaging. Google Hangouts yes. does that too. Yeah, uh, so, so hmm. for for um, for for real time interaction, the you know the 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 um, the CryptoCat implementation of of OTP is is great, and you know you can still use PGP and encrypt any arbitrary bit of text. Well, and remember that that when, when we talked about um, uh, uh, OTP, the protocol of which CryptoCat is just one of many implementations, many existing like Trillion, many existing IM clients already have um, OTP support, and it's it's bulletproof technology, though it is it is real times because you need to negotiate um, on the fly. But I mean, so I mean, there really are existing good solutions for this. And, you know, this is just interesting. And I liked, I think the, I, the the real attraction was this concept of no one can tell when you're the recipient because everybody gets everything. 
And it's like, okay, well, that's there's good and there's bad to that. And scaling is one of the problems because you can see the problem with spamming. Imagine if if something like injects spam into this and now everybody, every single node has to store every single message for two days. As this system gets bigger, it just, you know, scalability is a real problem. Steve Gibson scales amazingly, yet still we must wait for his amazing revelation. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. I don't mean to tease, That's but I life. just it, it it hit me and I I just I I want to get it down, put out, you know, put it on. Put you don't on scale, paper. you don't scale either, come to think of it. No, I don't. One thing That's at a time. That's the problem. He's, Several he's, people have said we wish we had two Steve. He's single threaded. <laughs> <laughs> Even if his brain is multitasking, his his abilities are single threaded, and that's as it should be. You can go to well, grc.com and see all the things he's cranked out one at a time. One more, one more biggie very soon. Good. I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, that's where you get uh, SpinRight, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. You must have it if you have a hard drive. That's at grc.com. Steve's also got lots of other stuff, including his feedback form. And this would be an opportunity for you to ask questions of but Steve. grc.com slash feedback. We'll be answering them next week. God willing. God in the security environment willing. <laughs> if nothing horrible happens. <laughs> if somebody doesn't leave his uh, TrueCrypt password unencrypted. Um, what else? Oh, 16 kilobit audios there. Transcriptions by Elaine Ferris. It's a great resource. You can also follow Steve on uh, the Twitter, at SGGRC. And uh, if you want full uh, audio or video versions of this show, we have those two at our website, twit.tv slash SN. And, of course, you can always subscribe to any version uh, just by uh, going to iTunes or wherever you, you subscribe to podcasts. And, Leo, I have agreed to uh, come up and be with you for New Year's. Yay. So that's something going to be exciting. We're going to look for yeah. people who are in every time zone. Because we're going to do the 24 hours of New Year's. I'm the only one who's going to stay up 24 hours. You don't have to. I don't plan to. But we're going to get a lot of people up here. Um, and I'm really thrilled you're going to do that. And we're just going to have a party. And uh, every hour, and actually in some cases every every le less than an hour, because there's 26 time zones, we will uh, do a countdown to New Year. Starting at 4 a.m. New Year's Eve. That's what I calculated to be the beginning of this program. Four in the morning, New Year's Eve. Okay, now, and so the podcast is normally, let's see, where are we on the 24th? We'll, we'll do you at the normal time. <laughs> New Year's Day, New Year's oh, Day yeah. is Wednesday, January 1st. Right. I'll be done uh, by 4 a.m. New Year's Day, but I'll stick around we, if you want to. I mean, you know, we, we should just do the show the day before. Yeah, let's do it the day yeah, before. do it New Year's Eve. When you're still, like, able to put early together. <laughs> Yeah. In the first 12 hours of the show. <laughs> if we do it at the normal time a day early, that'll be fine. Perfect. perfect. But we'll have to do it after the 11 a.m. countdown because it's New Year. It's That's the beauty of this. It's New Year's Eve somewhere for 24 hours. Leo, we can do it in four 50-minute segments. <laughs> that's I'm we'll happy. I'm, I'll work with you. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you're coming. We're, we're starting to line up people. It looks like it's going to be a great party. Um, I'm hoping we get some music and stuff. Anybody who's listening who wants to be up here at the Brick House for that, please do. New Year's Eve. We start at 4 a.m. New Year's Eve morning, and then we go through 4 a.m. New Year's Day because that, we have to get Hawaii, and then we're done. Should be fun. I haven't done uh, 24 hours in a long time. Yeah. Not since you were <laughs> young. the iPhone. Leo. Well, no, no, not that long oh, ago. 2008. Okay. I did it when the iPhone came out in 2008. We did it 24 hours of the iPhone. Wow. Ah. <sighs>
I'm hoping I'm going to get a nurse to check my blood pressure. <laughs> I'm going to get a masseuse to give me back rubs. <laughs> I want to get a barber to come and give me a haircut and a shave. We're gonna. It's going to be an endurance. Oh my God! You know what I'm going to do? What? I am. I'm. I'm going to bring my coffee. Per, per, absolutely. I will need air. you to do that for me. Yes. Yes. You have got to taste this coffee, which everyone I expose it to says, <laughs> "This is coffee." You they said you were going to send me a kit, kidding? but we can hold off till New Year's Day. That's fine. We're, we're holding off because I don't trust you to like you know. No, no, no. Oh, and blah, we have blah, to titrate. I'm, we have to titrate I'm, this. Every I hour. I oversee the production oh, of the grinding yes. and the production. You yes. have all the equipment. I'm going to bring the raw materials, and we'll hand you the cup of coffee and see what you think. Yes. <laughs> and I want 50 milliliters, 50 cc's every hour. I will slowly titrate this. It's just fabulous. <laughs> just, oh. Thank you, Stevie G. <laughs> we'll see you next week on Security Now. Bye. Security.